Terrorism, law and democracy. Le Canada a probablement développé ce qu'on pourrait appeler une méthode canadienne de gestion des crises. Long-term memory radio. During these crises, we have rationed freedom, based undue process on racial prejudice, and proved once again that our true uniting national ideology is peace, order, and good government. Part 2. Canada's national security. Terrorism and the rule of law. The international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th. Emergency! 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 Welcome to Terrorism, Law and Democracy, a documentary series examining the consequences of September 11th on Canada's legal and political system. Our theme is Terrorism and the Rule of Law in light of international and Canadian reactions to these terrorist crimes. My name is Khalid M. Safar. Part 2 of our series is a consideration of Canadian national security history. Professors Reg Whitaker and Desmond Morden present a review of past Canadian management of national crises. In part one of this documentary series, Terrorism, Law and Democracy, journalist Gwyn Dyer and scholar Noam Chomsky provided a general consideration of terrorism and a context for situating political events post 9-11 especially against the background of what President George Bush calls American internationalism, a military and economic vision to secure America's prosperity and the exportation of freedom. In this episode, we look at previous experiences in Canada when civil liberties have been threatened by security concerns. National security is at the very essence of Canada's constitution. La raison d'état, or the emergency doctrine, is articulated in Article 91 of the Constitution Act of 1867, which defines federal powers. Article 91 begins, It shall be lawful for the Queen, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate and House of Commons, to make laws for the peace, order and good government of Canada. Article 91 founds the reason of the state and justifies the federal government's power to proclaim the laws and regulations it deems necessary in cases of national emergencies or in crises of a national proportion. The theory of emergency powers has a jurisprudence. The power to adopt laws contrary to the constitutional arrangement of powers in cases of war of real or apprehended insurrection, or of crises of national importance, was recognized in a 1923 decision of the Privy Council, titled Fort Francis Pulp and Power Company versus Manitoba Free Press. It confirmed the constitutional validity of the government's wartime and post-wartime price controls of pulp and paper, especially newsprint. 
The 1947 decision called Japanese Canadians Reference upheld the constitutionality of the deportation of Japanese Canadians after the Second World War. As early as the 1882 decision, Russell v. the Queen, a legal precedent was established for the federal government to adopt in normal circumstances, which are not those of a war or those of an apprehended insurrection, laws which concern peace, order, and good government of Canada because of national importance. The War Measures Act, enacted in 1914, embodied the emergency doctrine and the federal government's residual powers. It was replaced in 1988 by the Emergencies Act. This was conditional legislation. That is, the application of emergency legislation depended on the occurrence or risk of occurrence of an act or event. Four kinds of emergencies were identified public welfare emergencies, such as natural disasters and accidents, public order emergencies, such as that of the October crisis, international emergencies, such as oil shortages, and finally, war emergencies. A proclamation that war, invasion, or insurrection, real or apprehended, exists empowers the federal government to make regulations for all aspects of Canadian life. The government also decides when such conditions or states of emergency are over. Invoked during two world wars and the October crisis, wartime or emergency measures can be continued during times of peace. The emergency doctrine has been confirmed by the courts, which have reminded the government that such measures should be temporary. The following presentations provide a view on Canada's past practice of this doctrine and power. The first speaker, Desmond Morton, speaks about early Canadian history and our experiences until the end of World War II. Professor Reg Whitaker will then address civil liberty issues related to the Cold War and the October crisis. Desmond Morton is Professor of History at McGill University and is the author of 37 books on Canadian political, military and industrial relations. Desmond Morton spoke before the Conference on Terrorism, Law and Democracy on March 25, 2002. For most Canadians, 9-11 was another of those vicarious crises that imposed themselves on us. A few Canadians died in the World Trade Center. Many fewer were at the Pentagon. But I think Canada's real threat came from the outraged reaction of an injured superpower. Heavily dependent on U.S. markets, Canada's economic welfare depended on proving our loyalty with words, warships, aircraft, and combat troops, and a chilling fear that somehow we had let the terrorists through. Well, it turns out, no, we didn't. Not this time, but uh, you can't be too careful. 9-11 has lots of precedents. Our crises in Canada have indeed many times been 
outside Canada, vicarious, and in some ways related to the fears of allies and to the actions of allies rather than to our own. But we have sheltered terrorists or freedom fighters, the term distinguish themselves with some difficulty. We have, as Canadians, helped to fund the Irish Republican Army, Tamil Tigers, Irgun, and probably a few dollars from Canada have reached Hamas over time. Fenians, Communists, and the Front de Libération du Québec have all played on our soil. And in wartime, because a polar ice cap and two large oceans kept real dangers largely at a distance, we have fed our own paranoia with rumors of spies, saboteurs, and infiltrators. During these crises, we have rationed freedom, based undue process on racial prejudice, and proved once again that our true uniting national ideology is peace, order, and good government. And last December's laws are part of that enduring historic tradition. So, of course, is eventual repentance and forgetfulness. This morning, though I consider 9-11 essentially a police and security issue, and by no means a war, I am to focus mostly on the war-related crises between 1866 and 1942. In 1914, and again in 1939, J.W. Defoe tried to define our wartime engagements as Canadian wars. But I think most Canadians in both occasions echoed Sir Wilfrid Laurier's claim that we were simply answering the call of a mother country. And there was an assumption that Germans, Italians, or Japanese in Canada would respond to their mother country. All of us, after all, had homeland loyalties as in the 1860s when Irish Americans and a very few Irish Canadians engaged themselves in a plot to capture Canada for the sake of liberating their Irish homeland. For half a century, the existence of the Fenians fed Canadian paranoia. The victims on the whole, in retrospect, were the Irish Canadians themselves. Their most charismatic leader Darcy McGee was murdered. Their own loyalty was widely suspect. We have lots of Highland regiments, but very few Irish ones. Gilbert McMicken's undercover detectives watched them. Judges deprived them of habeas corpus. And since a key Fenian leader was also a British spy, Fenian ineptitude contributed regular humiliation. When Sir John A. Macdonald proposed to release the very few Fenian prisoners actually captured, public fury restrained it. Fenianism gave the Orange Lodge color for its own intolerance and bigotry to our collective Canadian cost. Then in 1869, another crisis, the Red River Métis jeopardized the national dream of spanning the Atlantic and Pacific. As his clerical backers had hoped, Louis Riel redirected the Métis to a narrower goal, forming a tiny new province. Then Riel's judicial murder of Thomas Scott created yet another crisis, justified a British-Canadian military expedition, more killing, and Protestant triumphalism. Sectional arrogance, in short, gave this crisis legs. In 1885, Riel returned 
to a new crisis on the South Saskatchewan. Riel's exovidate replayed obsolete tactics that hadn't worked that well in 1870 and failed utterly in 1885. His alliance with natives rather than with aggrieved white settlers panicked potential influential sympathizers. Then when he indicated that he wanted cash, my name is Riel and I want material, this sounded to Sir John A. Macdonald like a bid for a second bribe after the one he'd received earlier. The Prime Minister then felt righteous enough to proclaim that he would, I quote, uphold the law and enforce the peace. So instead of money, 6,000 militia headed west. And on May 12th, Batash fell and Riel surrendered. Instead of a grand state trial, six jurors into Regina decided his fate. And much like Riel in 1870, MacDonald had concluded that a death was necessary to uphold peace, order, and good government in the West. And I'm sorry to say, perhaps, as a partial descendant of that crisis, it worked. Let me ignore scores of other local, smaller crises, though big enough to those who faced them, when threats to property and authority were met by a volunteer militia. Created in 1855 for aid of the civil power, our volunteer troops answered some 96 calls between Confederation and the First World War, many of them in the early years of the 20th century. In 1909 to 10, most of our tiny permanent force spent the year in the Cape Breton coal fields. When they came home, most of them quit. A comparable civil aid force formed of British Columbia militia guarded the Nanaimo coal mines for about a year until August of 1914, when we embarked on our biggest crisis yet. On August the 4th, 1914, Canadians of British origin, indeed Canadians of Francophone origin, displayed loyalty to the empire, or perhaps to France. Mob bullying, even here in Montreal, where the German consul was chased through the Mount Royal Hotel, told Canadians of German origin, some 40,000 of them German-born, that this was a game they were not welcome to join. Another 190,000 Canadians had roots in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and over 60,000 had been born there. Now, European history suggested that Czechs, Slurbs, Serbs, Slovenes, Ukrainians had very little faith in the Habsburg monarchy. But very few Canadians bothered even to ask, much less to find out. When Parliament met on August the 18th, the Prime Minister, Sir Robert Borden, invited a fellow Haligonian, W.F. O'Connor, to draft emergency powers. Make absolutely certain that you omit no power that the government may need. This not from a Tory, but from a Liberal. O'Connor complied. His War Measures Act gave the Cabinet authority to do anything necessary for the security, defense, peace, order, and welfare of Canada. How many O'Connors are living in Ottawa now? By comparison, Britain's Defense of the Realm Act, or DORA, was frail and had to be constantly amended. Ours has done for years. Borden asked Canadians to differentiate between Prussian militarism and peace-loving Germans, even here. As for Austro-Hungarians, he made no reference. An order in council banned enemy reservists from leaving Canada. 
But despite warnings from immigration officials, no steps were taken. Why? This may sound familiar. As the government announced, the inadvertent arrest of United States citizens would almost inevitably lead to diplomatic representations. Even in this crisis, we had our eyes southward. And enemy reservists had over a week to get away if they were so inclined. However, early German victories were held to be the result of treachery. How else could the superior allies have been defeated? And while patriotism filled the ranks of the Canadian Expeditionary Force, paranoia filled jails. Ethnic prejudice, malicious gossip, and the yellow press allowed patriotic vigilantes to keep government and police busy. Infernal flying machines, it was said, would bomb Ottawa from upstate New York. And thousands were interned or paroled as prisoners of war. Registrars of enemy aliens recorded suspicious foreigners. My own great-grandfather, General Otter, became director of internment operations. The Dominion Police and the Royal Northwest Mounted Police promised him secret service assistance, part of their responsibilities. But in all of this, let me add, ordinary Canadians provided the steam. They demanded that German-born employees be dismissed from government service, from universities, even from businesses. Gossip, it's hard to call it anything else, tore men from their families and businesses and condemned them untried to police cells and drafty immigration halls, makeshift barbed wire cages, tented camps, drafty exhibition halls held the internees. Ontario sent its middle-class internees to the crumbling casemates of Fort Henry, Nova Scotia prisoners joined German seamen in an old factory building in Amherst. Others sheltered in lumber shanties. 86 wives and 156 children were permitted to join husbands and fathers in huts at Vernon, British Columbia, or Spirit Lake in Quebec's clay belt. Others were granted meager allowances for food and fuel. As prisoners of war, the Hague Convention entitled them to the conditions of a captor's own troops, including distinction between officers and other ranks. Civilians classified as officers received better accommodation, or less worse, you might say, and were not obliged to work. Such internees had Canadian counterparts in Germany, mostly housed in racing horse stables outside Berlin. Such middle-class internees had no counterpart among the thousands of unemployed laborers interned by Canadian towns because local taxpayers refused to feed enemy aliens left to starve by railway contractors and logging firms. Otter discovered this, protested their fate, released those he could, and built new camps at Capus Casing and others in the national parks. Internees were set to cut bush and clear land for post-war veteran settlements. An April the 1915 order in council allowed alien unemployed to go to work in the United States if they pledged not to help the enemy. But furious at German gas attacks at Ypres and the sinking of the Lusitania, Canadians forced more internments yet on a government which avoided, tried to avoid the expense. Trapped by a Habsburg identity many despised, Thousands of workers were confined in makeshift camps and put to work for a mere 25 cents a day. 
Canada's wartime labor shortage ultimately forced the release of almost all of them. The, uh, they were often sent to work in Cape Breton coal mines. Not, I guess, a great improvement over Kappa's casing. By 1919, Canada had interned 8,579 men and women, 2,009 of them Germans, and 5,954 defined as Austro-Hungarians at a cost, for those who care, exclusive of their military guards of $4,445,092.93. British colonies that sent internees to Canada paid a quarter, a quarter of this cost. Escapes and camp riots had cost six lives, all by rifle fire, and only the guards had rifles. Despite three man-made disasters, remember the Parliament buildings fire in February 1916, the collapse of the Quebec Bridge in September 1916, and the Halifax explosion on December 6, 1917, politicians and police could boast that no confirmed act of espionage or sabotage occurred in Canada during the 1914-18 war, and German state archives indicated that none had been intended. By 1918, Canadian paranoia had a fresh target. The Bolshevik Revolution turned Russians into enemies. C.H. Cahan, a corporate merger specialist from Halifax, practicing here in Montreal, blossomed into Canada's first director of public safety. Backed by both federal police forces and special powers under the War Measures Act, Cahan pursued foreigners and even pure Cockney radicals. Influential citizens managed to rescue Leon Trotsky from the Amherst internment camp, and R.B. Bennett, perhaps to some of your surprise, defended war resistors all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. But opposition to Cahan's home front witch hunt, witch hunt was almost mute. After the war, Ottawa merged the Mounted Police and the Dominion Police as the RCMP to battle bootleggers counterfeiters, and, of course, subversives. Born in Fred Farley's barn near Guelph on May 23, 1921, the Communist Party would provide the merged force with its main target. And certainly the RCMP became Bennett's iron heel of ruthlessness. In 1935, when William Lyon Mackenzie King brought the Liberals back to power, he eventually persuaded the Mounties that Hitler's Germany and Mussolini's Italy both needed looking at in terms of their national communities in Canada. Japan had used its consul generals to raise local support. The fact was that Ottawa knew very little, if anything, about Italians, Germans, and Japanese. It knew what the voters knew, which was, of course, somewhat paranoid. They also knew a new phrase, courtesy of the Spanish Civil War, fifth columns. The fascist traitors who allegedly had given Francisco Franco victory over the Republicans. So in 1937, King sets the Mounties on the Germans, Italians, and Japanese. Mountie informers would include Guzenko agent and communist Fred Rose and Japanese organized crime kingpin Etsujomori. Ethnic mailing lists, however, were the best source of names for future raids and internment. This is what the officials discovered when, in 1938, they began to draft new Defense of Canada regulations. 
And in May of 1939, they produced a provisional war book suggesting immediate internment for enemy aliens with, I quote, real proof of disloyalty or subversion. Then they went back and looked at the Mounties lists and discovered there was no real proof of anything much and suggested they do something about it. Then in August, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty linked the communists to the Nazis. And so when Hitler struck Poland on September the 1st, the Minister of Justice, Ernest Lapointe, and senior civil servants took another quick look at the Mountie lists, reflected on the public mood, held their noses, and ordered that they be used for mass arrests. So as members of Parliament gathered in Ottawa on September 4th, so that Parliament could decide, uh, carloads of Mounties and local police circulated with their lists in Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, and other cities, collecting about 800 alleged Nazi suspects. Aware of their ignorance, officials finally started consulting university experts on Europe, like Professor Watson Kirkconnell, recently moved to McMaster. Kirkconnell insisted that the third factor, as it was called, was no threat to Canada's security or unity. And since the government benefited largely from ethnic votes, this was an opinion that King's government welcomed. A senior government official, Norman Robertson, would resist interning communists, though they did far more than the Nazis, being much better organized, to disrupt Canada's modest early war effort. Days after a March 26, 1940 general election gave King's Liberals 181 of the 245 seats, um, the government began to move. So did the enemy. On April 9, 1940, fifth columnists aided a surprise Nazi invasion of Norway. Within a month, Europe had been overrun. French resistance wilted. Why? Fifth columnists. Canadians felt panic. In one day, King's office received 228 messages demanding action, and this when we all depended on snail mail. King noted smugly how alarmed his officials, O.D. Skelton, J.W. Pickersgill, and Arnold Heaney had suddenly become. It amuses me a little, his diary recorded, how completely some men swing to opposite extremes in one day. On June 4th, the Defense of Canada regulations proscribed the Communists, along with several of their front groups. When Mussolini joined Hitler on June 10th, police in Montreal and Toronto used build lists built on denunciations by political enemies and business rivals to round up hundreds of Italian-Canadian men. Trains took them to Petawawa, an army training camp northwest of Ottawa. Weeks later, after he denounced registration, Montreal's mayor, Camille Oud, would join them. These events have, of course, been overshadowed in the national memory by the whole-scale evacuation of Japanese Canadians from coastal British Columbia in 1942. Sixty years later, the evacuation remains an agreed national shame, complete with compensation for those fortunate to live long enough to qualify, not for those who didn't, of course. In its essentials, the events imitated previous war-related crises, including a lack of serious evidence, a dark core of racial prejudice, inflammatory media, 
and reluctant acquiescence by a government pressured by its supporters and warned by its actual security advisors in two of the three services and in the mounted police that it was overreacting. The lack of hostile activity justified an arbitrary action. So did Japanese military success in the early months of the war. However, there was no precedent for the disposal of Japanese-Canadian assets in mid-war or efforts at forcible repatriation to a starving homeland and other measures akin to a final solution of decades of anti-Japanese prejudice on Canada's west coast. In short, I want to distinguish between evacuation in 1941 and the actions that followed from it in 1943 and in 1945 to 47. As in the earlier wars, Ottawa's internees, German, Italian, Japanese, and communist, would live in bush camps or army camps under military discipline and rations, guarded by the elderly soldiers of the Veterans Home Guard, in conditions defined for war prisoners in the post-war Geneva Conventions. Cut off from friends, family, and jobs, internees could believe that they were punished for their ethnicity and for their age. 18 to 39 marked them as potential soldiers. Young rebels, or gambaria, uh, interned at Angler in northern Ontario, were locked up as Japanese because they were more outspoken about their rights as Canadians than were older Issei. Well, the treatment of internment internees in 1939-42 follows a common pattern, but it failed to ensure that the resources were provided to make those lists remotely accurate or to verify them or to provide the means even when they had found how bad those lists were. To be fair, doing so required informers, surveillance, double agents, all of which were both costly and repugnant to an open society. Such actions were systematically attacked by the totalitarians as much as by liberals. Repugnant, repugnant solutions helped the public to forget only to replay its panic at the next moment of crisis. This I wrote long before the 11th of September last. The injustice of internment underlines the need for judicial safeguards. Shocked by threats that they might have to justify their 1939-40 arrests, the RCM police also recognized that many internees seized in their dawn sweeps were in fact utterly harmless and took action to have them released, somewhat to the relief of the Treasury. Civil libertarians had no idea this was going on. No doubt, many people in Canada in 1914 or 1939 or at any other time wished this country's defeat. But such people were by no means only enemy aliens. Many of them were Canadians of long standing. Nor did such people, it appears, consider pursuing their own goal. That experience might have enlightened Canadians in the wake of the 11th of September, but my impression is that it was buried with much other knowledge because it didn't seem relevant, important, or useful. But no information is until we need it, and that's why some of us labor away in the boonies uh, trying to prepare it for people just in case. Thank you. You have been listening to Desmond Morton 
speaking about national security history at the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy. Reg Whitaker is a professor of political science at the University of Victoria and professor emeritus at York University and has written about civil liberties, security and democracy. His most recent book published in 1999 is entitled The End of Privacy, How Total Surveillance is Becoming a Reality, published by New Press. When Canada joined the war on terrorism after the attacks of September the 11th, the decision was not without historical precedence in the post-war world. The Cold War and the October 1970 crisis in Quebec offer two intriguing parallels to the present situation, and there are a number of useful lessons that can be drawn from these experiences. The Cold War, uh, as we all remember it, uh, was in fact a very much an American-led uh, effort but it takes a little effort of recall to go back to the very first public notice of the Cold War, uh, and that happened in, of all places, Ottawa. And it, this is now, in, effect, in fact, part of Canadian mythology. Igor Gazenko, the first important Soviet defector uh, in the post-war period, exposed a spy ring operated by Canada's ostensible wartime ally, uh, the USSR, exploiting the willingness of Canadians sympathetic to communism uh, to betray their own country on behalf of a higher loyalty. Canada, it was said, experienced a sudden wake-up call, communicated this to its allies, and then settled in for a prolonged struggle on many fronts with the new enemy once uh, its senior partner had taken overall charge. And this struggle went on for four decades, uh, and most of this time Canada was a very junior partner, toiling in alliance obscurity, uh, very occasionally raising a cautious criticism of, of American leadership, only to be quickly cuffed for its temerity. But it's important to be understood that when the Gazenko spy scandal broke, first uh, in secret in September 1945, and then publicly in February 1946, Canada was, in important ways, on its own, without clear models uh, to, to guide it. It consulted and received advice from its close allies, but it had to work out the details for itself. And its response stamped a distinctive made-in-Canada look to Canadian Cold War security policy. Once the extent of Soviet espionage and Canadian complicity had become apparent from the documents and information Gazenko brought with him, the government of Canada acted with what can be called the firm smack of Prussian authority. There was a secret order in council, known only to three cabinet ministers, under the authority of the War Measures Act, although the war itself had technically been over for a couple of weeks before Gazenko defected, empowering the government to act against suspected spies with little or no regard for civil liberties outside the normal processes of the legal system. Armed with this, the government bided its time, consulted, watched, uh, waited for the right moment. When it did come in mid-February 1946, the government struck with dawn raids by black leather jacketed RCMP 
who entered homes and apartments without, actually without specific warrants, as we understand it, detained a dozen people, more followed in the days and weeks ahead, uh, seized papers doc and documents. The detainees were then transported to the RCMP barracks in Rockcliffe, where they were interrogated for weeks on end. They were not arrested. There were no criminal charges. They were unrepresented by counsel. Habeas corpus was ignored. They were then brought before a secret tribunal, a royal commission of inquiry, formidable establishment body, headed by two Canadian Supreme Court justices, and with the commission counsel being the president of the Canadian Bar Association. They were still without legal representation, told they had no choice but to answer all questions put to them, deliberately not informed that they had the right of protection against self-incrimination, and bullied and harried by the, uh, by, the, uh, by the commission. At the end of these proceedings, the commission published a lengthy and widely read report in which it named some two dozen Canadians as spies and traitors to their country. The detainees were then turned over to the courts where criminal charges were brought against them under various statutes, but particularly uh, the Official Secrets Act, uh, which among other things laid the burden of proof on the accused. Despite what appeared to be a stacked deck, only about half of the two dozen eventually charged with criminal offenses as a result of the inquiry were in fact ever convicted. Those who had incriminated themselves before the commission were in all cases found guilty. Those who, were, who resisted were widely, uh, were mainly acquitted. At the time, there was not a great deal of criticism of the government's uh, methods. Public opinion seemed to agree, and the legal profession seemed by and large unperturbed. In retrospect, criticism has been forthcoming, and I've contributed to it myself uh, with complaints about the lack of attention to civil liberties, the violation of liberal democratic norms, and so on uh, that, were, uh, that were involved in this. But I think it's important to understand what the rationale for the government's methods were. There was, I think, a consistent pattern, a single thread that ran through all its planning and execution with regard to how to handle this explosive affair. The government wished to maintain maximum control over the story, to frame it in the most appropriate manner, and to maximize control over its effects, both internal and external. In terms familiar to today's parlance, the government was trying to control the spin. And there were good reasons for this. Externally, Canada found itself in a very exposed position. Uh, the wartime alliance had not yet broken down publicly. A wrong move by Canada might precipitate grave consequences for international relations, and Mackenzie King was not going to put Canada in that kind of a position. That would be left to the big battalions of the Americans and the British. So the Soviet angle of the affair, the fact that this was Soviet espionage, was systematically played down in the commission report. Others could draw their own conclusions. Canada would not. The other reason for keeping spin control under government wraps was domestic. And here, I think, the wisdom of the government became apparent only later. 
Now, in downplaying the Soviet role, the government also chose to highlight the role of domestic communism in subverting the loyalties of Canadians. Commission report was an attempted at public education, uh, public warning about the dangers of dabbling in extremist ideas. It could also be seen as an exercise in political policing, setting authoritative boundaries on what the permissible limits of dissent were. Uh, but this in itself could be a dangerous process. It could spin out of control if rivals to the party in power sought to exploit the politics of loyalty. Without strict limits and without direct supervision of the crown, the politics of loyalty could become divisive and socially and politically destructive. In fact, that's exactly what happened in the United States, and we call it the McCarthy era. The Canadian government in 1946 did not foresee McCarthyism and the witch hunts uh, in the United States, but they did preempt the potential for uh, of potential Canadian McCarthy's from appearing. And indeed, there was a potential Canadian McCarthy right across the floor of the House of Commons, the leader of the official opposition, uh, George Drew, who kept on trying to be a McCarthy and kept on being foiled. I think it's important to, uh, to understand that, uh, that, in fact, there was many of the same things that were, were done in Canada that were done in the United States. For example, there was the, the, uh, the witch hunt uh, in Hollywood, uh, by the Un-American Activities Committee, uh, which got all sorts of headlines and all kinds of, uh, of film and, and, and publicity and everything was done out in the public. In fact, there was a purge in the Canadian film industry in the National Film Board of Canada, but it was done in secret behind closed doors. In fact, the government basically denied there was a purge happening, minimized the impact, and uh, it went on, but it went on in, uh, uh, in, in secret. It, as, as one looks at the way that the Canadian government then proceeded after the Gazenko affair to, for example, the way it, it, uh, it handled the security screening system, uh, security screening for government employees, security screening for immigrants, refugees, uh, and citizenship applicants. Um, and uh, in fact, there was a, uh, a, a, a very large-scale security screening system that was set in place. Uh, most of it carried out in secret, unlike the American case. Uh, when, in fact, complaints were raised or even questions were asked for information uh, by opposition politicians seeking to find some kind of issues to, to make out of all this, the government's answer was always the same rather smugly, uh, basically, it's none of your business. We're taking care of this, trust us. If you look at the, at the security uh, screening system and immigration, uh, we find, for example, that there were very many procedures that uh, might seem questionable from a liberal democratic perspective, such as uh, ex parte evidence, in-camera hearings, uh, the uh, protection of, uh, of, uh, of security and intelligence information even from the uh, people who were subject to deportation proceedings uh, and did not have a chance to understand the case against them and so on. But again, this was to keep uh, all this strictly within uh, the power of the, not only of the executive branch, but within the federal government. And with the exception of Duplessis, Quebec, a distinct society before that phrase was developed,
the Cold War was essentially fought by the federal government and was kept under the control of the federal government. Moving on to the October 1970 crisis, and I'll come back to uh, some of the lessons from the Cold War in a, in a moment, but going on to the October 1970 crisis, um, when Canada joined in the new global war on terrorism, it was not altogether lacking in historical experience in dealing with terrorist uh, uh, movements, although in this case a domestic terrorist movement, right here in Montreal. In October 1970, Canada faced its worst internal security crisis when cells of the FLQ kidnapped uh, the British Trade Commissioner James Cross and, and uh, kidnapped and subsequently murdered the Quebec Minister of Labour, Pierre Laporte. Canada was thrust into a uh, harsh global spotlight by these events, and they had to handle this crisis in a way that, uh, a, a crisis which was fraught with uh, very uh, sensitive implications for Canada-Quebec relations. Faced with this mushrooming crisis, Canada acted swiftly, forcefully, and with not the slightest regard for civil liberties. Invoking the War Measures Act under a putative and never proven apprehended insurrection, the federal government placed Quebec under what amounted to a state of martial law. Extensive use was made of the power to detain and interrogate without charge, without counsel, without habeas corpus. The media were censored. The FLQ declared a banned organization, retroactive association with which could land somebody in prison. In the aftermath of the crisis proper, the resources of the security service and the Quebec and Montreal police forces were mobilized to counter and negate by virtually any means, fair or foul, the FLQ and its, or its successors. In filling out this blank check issued them, the security and police forces so exceeded their, uh, their lawful roles that their activities were subject to a series of federal and provincial commissions of inquiry. However controversial the methods employed, the result was clear and unequivocal. The FLQ and with it the entire terrorist tendency of the sovereignty movement in Quebec was eradicated. From the early 1970s on, the sovereignty movement, a uh, sovereignty field was left entirely to the legitimate uh, uh, form of the Parti Québécois to elections and referenda. In surveying the contemporary history of terrorist movements, around the world, the Canadian experience in stopping terrorism dead in its tracks stands out as a quite remarkable success story. Now there's a number of, uh, you know, re one can adduce various reasons for this. Timing was certainly one of them, uh, that repression was used at a moment when in fact it did not generate uh, hostility on a, on a widespread scale. Uh, uh, in the in the population, and there are other examples in Northern Ireland and, and Palestine and so on, where one sees that repressive actions, in fact, only become counterproductive after the struggle has developed at a certain to a certain level. It hadn't developed in in here in Quebec and uh, to that level, and it and, and repression worked. But above all, it was the availability, I think, of alternative peaceful means of expression for the sovereignty movement. Uh, the PQ had just entered the National Assembly in, in elections just a bit earlier the same year that enabled force to be used so successfully. Does the successful outcome of the affair offer retroactive justification to a government that in effect put liberal freedoms on hold and declared that the end justified the means? I think there are two answers to this question and each has significance for how we assess the implications 
to, uh, for the response uh, to September the 11th. First, it must be clearly stated that the Trudeau government during and after October 1970 was less than truthful or above board in its justification of its actions before Parliament and the public. There was no apprehended insurrection. The failure of the government to produce evidence uh, to back this up was not surprising because such evidence was not there, or at least was hardly compelling. Moreover, the advice of the RCMP would have been against using emergency powers if they'd been asked they never were. The government's retroactive justification leaned heavily on the alleged shortcomings of the intelligence that they were provided on the terrorist groups had left them no choice but to round up all the usual suspects and sort them later. This was, I discovered, when I, uh, when I had documents uh, on the October crisis and on the background intelligence reports on the FLQ and other uh, such groups uh, in an earlier period declassified, um, a seriously distorted view that was not only unfair to the RCMP, which actually did a pretty competent job of penetrating and reporting uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the terrorist groups. Uh, I mean, for example, in, earlier in 1970, in the summer of 1970, the RCMP had even given a, uh, a report to the government that said that kidnapping was going to be the chief tactic that the FLQ was going to adopt in the future, and even specified foreign diplomats and cabinet ministers as the likely targets. Government took no action and did not provide uh, protection at the tragic cost of Pierre Laporte's life. It's not a particularly ennobling spectacle to see a government blaming the servants for the faults of the master, uh, passing them off in, in that way. The RCMP believed that this was simply a matter of, uh, this is a criminal matter, and good, careful police work would uncover where the hostages were being held and allow them to be freed. The government chose to proceed in a different direction, or at least the Prime Minister and his close cabinet associates from Quebec, who were in each instance the most extreme hawks in, in cabinet. Um, they chose instead to exaggerate a threat, knowingly, and to perform a kind of coup de théâtre, a striking demonstration of the power of the federal government and the consequences uh, of undertaking a terrorist a challenge to, uh, to that power. And it worked. From a liberal standpoint, the October crisis offers a salutary warning about how the state can lie and use pretexts to aggrandize its power and crush opposition. From a Machiavellian standpoint, Pierre Trudeau skillfully manipulated a crisis not of his making to effect an end that was, in the long run, in the national interest. I don't know how I come down on this. I find it difficult to, uh, you know, to justify a government misrepresenting uh, its, uh, the facts of, of a crisis to knowingly misrepresenting facts to, to the public. On the other hand, a terrorist avenue that might have turned Quebec into an Ulster-style battleground uh, was avoided. Moreover, despite dire predictions at the time that the fabric of liberal democracy had been forever damaged by these actions, uh, I think uh, history shows us quite otherwise. As a long-term result of the crisis and its aftermath, the War Measures Act was later repealed and replaced by a statute that is much more measured and balanced. As a result of the post-crisis uh, countering of the violent separatists by unlawful means, Royal Commission recommendations led to the removal 
of the security service from the RCMP and the creation of a civilian agency with a specific legal mandate about what is, it is authorized to do and what it is not authorized to do, and with uh, elaborate mechanisms of oversight, review, and, uh, and accountability attached to its operations. These are very positive gains for liberal democracy, and they derive paradoxically from the violations of liberal democracy uh, practiced during the crisis. History does not always move in straight lines. The war on terrorism is, a new, is the new Cold War, in a sense. Certainly, it's being treated that way by the United States. Uh, and indeed, I think one could say that it is, a, uh, as a new Cold War, it is one that probably commands greater public support because, after all, September the 11th was an attack on civil society. It was an attack on ordinary people. It wasn't an affair of states as the Cold War was uh, at, at bottom. Uh, and as such, it in fact gives President Bush a much freer hand in terms of, uh, of, uh, of how that uh, response is going to be carried out. In some ways, uh, the American administration has already indicated that it will, uh, that it is quite willing to step outside the bounds of liberal democracy and the rule of law in how it has responded to, uh, to this and, you know, the military tribunals and uh, a whole series of, uh, of issues. But even in ter inside the United States in the, uh, in the USA Patriot Act, uh, which is, in fact, quite an astonishing shift uh, away from American liberty towards uh, state authority, uh, and, and, and so on. We could go on and on about that. But um, in, in, the, in the Cold War period, the Americans often pushed Canada. Uh, once the Americans got the evangelical spirit in them and started leading the Cold War, uh, they took it on themselves to nudge and push their allies to constantly sort of upgrade their standards to proper, i.e. American standards. Uh, in that Context, uh, context, Canada responded, I think, generally with kind of weary resignation and went ahead and did even things that they thought were silly and excessive um, that the Americans were insisting on, on the principle that it would be more costly to provoke them uh, than to go ahead and do it. But on the other hand, it could also be said that those standards uh, that were applied in Canada were, by and large, made in Canada. And uh, they may have been pushed a little further on occasion, but basically they were made in Canada. I think we're seeing much the same thing today. We're getting a lot of pressures from the United States, particularly as they uh, impact on the border. Uh, and uh, there's enormous pressures being felt by Canada, both external from the Americans, but also internal, for example, by a very, very powerful lobby, a big business that simply uh, takes it as its uh, concern is simply to do whatever the Americans want to open the border up again uh, and uh, because in fact profit is the chief uh, criteria and uh, and th those pressures are going to be very very difficult to uh, to counter I think that uh, Canada will in fact find itself in many ways and in similar uh, situation only perhaps more difficult now than they did during the Cold War uh, difficult negotiations. I think the, the Liberal government is today engaged in the same delicate and difficult negotiation that its Cold War era counterparts also faced. Um, how to comply with American pressures for harmonization 
uh, and integration without losing Canadian sovereignty. Um, Lester Pearson recalled in his memoirs the rough patch he'd had to go through when he tried to independently broker a peace in Korea against the wishes of the Americans at that time, and particularly of his counterpart, the U.S. Secretary of State, Dean Acheson. Pearson, with, uh, uh, with, uh, with irony in his, uh, in his memoirs, referred to it as a difficult negotiation between General Acheson and Corporal Pearson. I think uh, we're seeing uh, many replays of this all, all over again. Well, on the other hand, I think we also have to uh, realize that the actual content of security policies uh, now, as during the Cold War, are not really all that different than what the Americans. We have basically the same notions about who the bad guys are and who the bad organizations are. We don't really differ that much. The trick is to convey to Americans Canadian insistence that we be permitted to ar arrive at these conclusions on our own. Well, I think in, in summation, and referring now base, back as well to the October crisis, Canadians have learned from past experience that too heavy a reliance on authoritarian measures is ultimately damaging to the fabric of the free society we wish to preserve. The effects of the Cold War and the October uh, crisis have, in the end, strengthened the rights consciousness of Canadians and put in place more barriers to arbitrary state actions. Canadians are certainly willing to temporarily shift the balance between freedom and security in the face of serious threats. When provoked, we certainly will uh, do that, but only within a framework of the rule of law. At the end of the day, it is precisely that moderate Canadian middle way that we seek to preserve against the aggressive drumbeat of American unilateralism, even at the same time as we line up as willing coalition partners in the war on terrorism. Professor Reg Whitaker, addressing the conference, Terrorism, Law and Democracy, reported March 25th. Part 2, A Consideration of Canadian National Security History of the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy, which explores the theme of terrorism and the rule of law through international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th and the ongoing international campaign against terror. I was Khalid, and this has been a long-term memory radio presentation from CKUT 90.3 FM, the people's power station in Mount Real. Join us next time for part three, the impact of September 11th on Canada's legal system, the new law Bill C-36, the Anti-Terrorism Act. Long-Term Memory Radio, Part 2, Canada's National Security. Terrorism and the Rule of Law, 
the international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th. Join us Wednesdays, 5 to 6 p.m. on CKUT 90.3 FM, the People's Power Station in Mount Real.